If you have your Bibles with you this morning, and I trust that you brought your copy of God's Word with you. If not, you should find a copy of one in the hymn rack in front of you. It is of the same translation that I read from, which is the New American Standard. And if you have your Bibles with you, or one of those, please take them and open them to the book of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, and again, one verse of Scripture that we're going to look at today. As we go through this series of passing the torch, getting ourselves ready uh, for the new pastor who will be coming whenever uh, the search committee can find him. He's out there somewhere. The Lord's been preparing that individual to come and pick up the torch and continue carrying on, passing the torch to the next generation and so forth of the love of God that's been revealed in Jesus Christ. And in preparation for that time, we've been looking at several figures of speech used by the Apostle Paul in his letter to young Timothy, who was the pastor of the church at Ephesus, to encourage him as the leader of the church, as well as also to inspire and encourage uh, the people of the church to whom he is writing. And uh, so we're looking today at verse 6, which has to do with farming and with the farmer. So 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 6 Uh, The New Living Translation that I've chosen to read from today uh, expresses verse 6 similar to the way that uh, the New American Standard does, but I'm using the NIV, uh, NLT, excuse me, the New Living Translation today because of the clarity of what I'm trying to get across to you. But in 2 Timothy 2.6, the Bible says, hardworking farmers are the first to enjoy the fruit of their labor. Now, I take this passage of Scripture as an illustration to underscore once again the emphasis and the role of the church and of every Christian to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ to people who've never discovered His wonderful love and experienced His amazing grace. That we have been commissioned by the Lord Himself whose very purpose was expressed in His own words that the Son of Man had come to seek and to save that which was lost. So we as Christians are to take the torch that he has passed on to us and pass it on to the next generation in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Every church ought to have a mission or purpose statement. That is a statement that defines their reason for existence. Why do we exist as First Baptist Church? What is our purpose and mission in this community and ultimately in the world? Well, our church's mission and purpose is best expressed by taking the first letters of our church's name, First Baptist Church. The letter F stands for finding the lost. In other words, we're not just to remain here in the four walls of this building, but there's a world out there, there's a community out there, there's a city out there, a county and a state filled with people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving power. We are to come together as a church family to receive inspiration and encouragement as we worship the Lord. But then as we leave these facilities, we are to go out into the community and the world where we live and work and serve and share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And we are to look for lost people. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that the lost people are to come to us. But over and over again, it does say that we are to go out into the world. We are to go where they are. We are to seek and lead other people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what somebody did for us, and we are to do the same for others. The letter uh, 
Baptist, or the letter B stands for building the believer. In other words, that's just another way of expressing discipleship. That's why we have Sunday school. That's why we have Bible studies. That's why we have special courses occasionally to train and educate and make disciples of one another. So we're to win them to the Lord, but then to take them and to train them in the ways of the Lord and make disciples of them. That's what Jesus said in what's called the Great Commission. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. So our responsibility is twofold. We are to win people to the Lord, and then we're to take those that we have won and train them and make disciples of them. The letter C stands for changing the world. That's how you change the world. And underneath all of those three statements, we put one person at a time. Find the lost, build the believer, change the world one person at a time. That's how you persecute. You know, people don't get saved as a group. I wouldn't take all of you here this morning if you were lost and I would just raise my hands and say, I now pronounce all of you are saved. You're going to heaven when you die. No, that's not the way it's done. The people don't get into the kingdom of God, don't become Christians as a group, but as individuals, one by one by one. That's O-N-E, one person at a time. We change the word. You know, just like the old expression, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. That's how you do it. How do you win the world for Christ? One person at a time. So finding the lost, building the believer, changing the world one person at a time. That's evangelism. That is witnessing. That is passing the torch of the good news of Jesus Christ to others who've never experienced his saving grace. Now, one of the metaphors that's used throughout the Bible in reference to this is the metaphor or the figure of speech of farming, farming. Let me go back and refresh your memory. Did you know that the first vocation in the world was that of farming? Adam was a farmer. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Genesis, chapter 9 and verse 20. Chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 20. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. So Adam's responsibility was to keep the Garden of Eden, to cultivate the ground, to pick the fruit, to enjoy uh, the results of his labor. He was a farmer, a gardener. Then you go on to Cain. Cain, in the fourth chapter of the book of Genesis, verses 2 and 3 says, Cain was a tiller of the ground, that is, a farmer. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Now, we don't have the time to explain that a little further other than he was not supposed to. They were in the act of worship. He and his brother and his family were worshiping the Lord. They were to have brought a blood sacrifice as they worshiped the Lord. Cain did not do that. He rather, he, uh, instead of, he, he produced the fruit of his own, of his own hands, his own works. 
he, he, he plowed the ground. He cultivated it. He planted the seed. And, and it was the results of his work. Well, well, salvation is not the results of your work. It's all purely of the grace of God. And the Bible says without the shedding of the blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. God had set the standard. God had showed them how. Because you go back to the third chapter of Genesis and it says that God provided them a coat to cover their nakedness. It was the coat of the skin of an animal. An animal had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be shed. That's the only way you can approach the throne of God. That's the only way you can be forgiven is by shedding of blood. And for whatever reason, Cain refused to do that and consequently disobeyed the Lord and brought wrath of God upon him. But Cain was a farmer. He tilled the soil. Noah... After the flood, Noah and his family. Noah was a farmer. It tells us in the ninth chapter of the book of Genesis and verse 20, then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. So Adam was a farmer. Cain was a farmer. Noah was a farmer. Now there are many scriptures on farming in the Bible. And Jesus makes many references to farming in some of his parables. There's the parable of the sower. The sower had a bag of seed. He goes out in the field and he scatters the seed. Some falls on good sound, uh, ground, others shallow, other hard and so forth. But here's a sower. He's out in the middle of the field. And Jesus is using the example of the sower of seed to talk about the sowing the seed of the gospel. Then there's the parable of the tares and the wheat. How the grain had been spread and planted. The wheat was growing up and one day the workers in the field came to the master and said, somebody has, has sown tares, uh, the wrong kind, uh, among the wheat. Uh, should we try to pull them apart? And he, Jesus said, no, leave them as they are. They let them grow up together and then in the harvest they'll be separated. He's talking about the end times and how the lost will be separated from the, from the saved. Then there's the parable of the mustard seed. The smallest seed of all known to man. And yet he says this tall, small, tiny seed grows, multiplies, and a huge tree is produced. There's the parable of the laborers in the vineyard. While at the beginning of the day and throughout the day, he hired different ones to go into the vineyard and, and to harvest the grapes. At the end of the day, he gave them uh, the, uh, their wages that he had agreed upon. And then there's the parable of the landowner, the guy who had the barns and had a bumper crop and, and what was he going to do with it? And he said, I'll tear those down, build bigger barns and so forth. And Jesus told the story to say how foolish it is for a person to put so much emphasis upon coveting material things when he is on, his own soul is lost and that night his soul would be required of him. And uh, so uh, then there's the, the story or the illustration that used about uh, putting your hand to the plow he said, if you put your hand to the plow and continue to look back, uh, uh, you're, you're not going to uh, plow a straight line. You're not, you're not going to be, you're not worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not a farmer. And I told a fellow one time who was, I said, I feel like I missed a lot by not being a farmer. And he said, you did. You missed a whole lot of hard work. <laughs> you did. But I do know this, that if you're going to plow, You've got to pick out something on the opposite side of the field and you've got to focus on that, especially if you were plowing with a horse or a mule or something. And, uh, and, and you keep your eyes on that and you'll, you'll plow a straight line. If you take your eyes off of it, you can zigzag all over the place. So the idea of you've got a goal out there, a purpose that you're reaching for and moving for and working toward uh, so that you can plow a straight line, so to speak. So these are just a few of the examples that our Lord used in reference to farming to illustrate some important lessons. 
And so every Christian must obey the Lord uh, in three commandments that the Lord has given to us. We must come to him. We must learn from him. And then we must go. We must go out into the world and tell other people about Jesus. Now notice what Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.6. He says, hard working farmers are the first to enjoy the fruit of their labors. The word hard working here is a word that is used in reference to a person working physically to the point of exhaustion. He is tired. Many a time I've heard people who do work out in the field, and especially when I was growing up, my grandfather was a farmer. And I know that uh, when he came to the end of the day, uh, he, he, was, he was worn out. He was tired. He had sweat uh, by the sweat of his brow and, and uh, had worked hard all day long. He was ready for a good night's rest. So hardworking farmers are the first to enjoy the fruit of the labor. Someone has said that a dictionary is the only place where uh, uh, you, you find success before you find the word work. So success does not come uh, easy. You have to work at it. Thomas Jefferson said, I never did anything worth doing by accident, nor did any of my inventions come by accident. They came by hard work, by hard work. And so the hardworking farmer is the one who enjoys the labor. Now, I've taken eight words I uh, found eight different places in the scriptures where there are references to farming and farmers and the harvesting of the product and so forth. And these eight words, I think, are applicable to us as we think about the future, as we think about the responsibilities that we have individually as Christians and collectively as a church. So let's look at these eight words that describe a hardworking farmer. And the first one is to be persistent. The word persistent Galatians 6, 9 says, So don't get tired of doing what is good. Don't get discouraged and give up. For we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. I've never known of a farmer who planted in the morning hours and reaped the harvest in the afternoon. It always takes days and weeks and sometimes months for a harvest that has been sown in order for it to be reaped. And the same thing is true about witnessing to people about the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We must be persistent. There is a challenge here in this verse of scripture in Galatians 6, 9. Paul says, don't get tired of doing what is good. So if, if, you, if you do your work and the work is hard, you have the tendency to give up. Or if you fall down, if you fall down, don't stay down, get up. Get up and keep going. And he's just saying, don't get tired of doing what is good. It should never run out. It's a challenge. But then there's the assurance that goes along with the challenge. He says, we will reap a harvest of blessing at the appropriate time. So if we do the hard work, if we plant the seed, if we tell other people about Jesus, you may not win that person right at the beginning. It may take several times. It may take several opportunities, several chances that you have to share the good news of Jesus Christ. If, if, it doesn't, if the person doesn't accept Christ, then don't give up. Don't quit. Pray for that person. Lift that person up to the Lord. Ask the Lord to touch his heart, to change his heart, to change his life. Ask the Lord to give you wisdom and know how to go back and approach the person again. Just, just don't give up. Be persistent in what you do. We reap if we sow. We reap what we sow. 
We reap more than we sow and we reap later than we sow. So be persistent in your witnessing for the Lord. The second thing is to be patient. Be patient. James 5, 7 and 8. Be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who eagerly look for the rain in the fall and in the spring. They patiently wait for the precious harvest to ripen. You too must be patient and take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Now, one thing that a farmer does a lot of, he does a lot of waiting, a lot of waiting. He plants the seed, but then he has to wait weeks, days, weeks, months, wait for the rain to come, wait for the sun to shine, wait for the weather to be just right. So he does a lot of waiting, a lot of watching. That's just a part of his responsibility. There are three uncontrollable things that the farmer has no power over, but which he has to deal with. One is the weather. They never know what the weather is going to do. The other is the economy. And the other is labor, hard labor. So what do you do while you're waiting for the harvest to come? What do you do while you're waiting for God to bring a new pastor to you? Well, you do what the farmer does while he's waiting for the harvest. He gets ready. He prepares himself. He gets the barn ready. He makes sure that his harvesting equipment is in good working order. And he makes sure that he has enough laborers to bring in the harvest. So he doesn't just sit on the porch and look out on the fields and twiddle his thumb. No, he's busy working and preparing and getting ready for the harvest for it to be brought in. Psalm 130 and verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord. My soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. In his word I do hope. So his word is, if you'll sow the seed, the harvest will come. And so we have hope. The word hope, someone has said, another acrostic. You've always heard me use the word hope about heavenly optimism permeating everything. Well, here's another one for you. The word hope, H-O-P-E. Holding on, praying expectantly. That's what you're supposed to do while you're waiting for the harvest to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, the New Living Translation says, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and steady, always enthusiastic about the Lord's work, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Everything that you do for the Lord will be productive. So don't give up. You be persistent and you be patient and wait for the Lord to do his work. Number three, be punctual. Be punctual. John 4, 35, Jesus had just a, a witness to the woman at the well. The disciples uh, had gone into the city to, to get a meal for them to eat. He came back. They saw him witnessing to this woman at the well, which was uh, an, uh, a no-no in that day. A, a man would not associate with a woman during the day, especially by themselves. And uh, so they were surprised to find Jesus uh, talking to this woman. And Jesus began to talk to them about the need for them to strike it, the iron while it's hot, as we say. And while talking to them, he looked up. The woman had gone into the city. She brought back uh, men and women from the city that were her friends and neighbors. And Jesus looked at them and he said, don't say that there's still four months before the harvest come. Look up. The, the, the harvest is ripe. The harvest is here. Here comes your harvest. 
And so we sometimes tend to think, well, we don't have a pastor, we don't have a leader, no one to guide us, so we can just sit back and relax and take it easy for a while. Uh, and the Lord says, no, there are people all around us who are still lost. They don't know Jesus. And, and there are some people that will never know Jesus if you don't go share with them. And so don't wait until the pastor comes or some other staff member comes and, 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 and to do your job. I can't do your job for you. I cannot witness for you. Neither can the next pastor. Neither can any of our staff. God places somebody on your heart. It may be a family member. It may be an employee. It may be a next door neighbor. It may just be a total stranger. I don't know, but he will lead you to somebody that needs to know the Lord. And it's your responsibility and your opportunity. And you need to be punctual and be alert at the time when the Lord opens the door for you to step through and witness to them. Lost time is never found time. I look back in deep regret over those opportunities that I had to say something to another person about Jesus and for whatever reason never did. Whether the devil just came and took away the seed before it had an opportunity to sprout and grow and produce or just my lack of unconcern and indifference or I just had the opportunity and did not do it. It's a lost time. And I can never regain it, Never, neither can you. So what do I do? Just sit and brood over it? No, I just move on. There are other people out there that need to be heard. Someone has said, you kill time. Why would you want to kill time? What did time ever do to you to want you to murder it? Don't kill time. Kill time and you murder opportunity. So use the time that God allows you and be punctual. One of the things that my dad, when I was growing up, drilled and drilled and drilled and drilled in my mind is that when you have a place to get to, get there on time. Don't be late. I like what Andre says to the choir. To be on time is to be late. To be ahead of time is to be on time. That's the same principle that my dad taught me. He said, you need to go. If you've got somewhere to be, you go early. You don't know what's going to happen between the time you leave and the time you get there. It's going to delay you. And if it's important enough for you to be there, it's important enough for you to be on time. That's the same thing about Sunday church. Church starts at 9. doesn't start at 9.05. starts at 9. And Sunday school starts when I get through. <laughs> so with that, we'll move on. Number four, partnership. Partnership. We're working together. John 4, 37, 38. You know about the saying. One person plants, someone else harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work. And you will gather the harvest. You see, when I came in 1981 as your pastor, I stood on the shoulders of 21 other pastors. Going back to 1884, when Luther Rice Scruggs was sent here to this part of East Texas, because there was not a Baptist church that preached the gospel in the city of Nacogdoches. And they saw that this was a field that was ripened to harvest in 1884. Luther Rice Scruggs led the people to establish the first Baptist church of Nacogdoches. And he stayed for a few years. He passed the torch on to the second pastor and the third pastor and on down through the centuries and and, and uh, years until finally in 1981, Dr. Lionel Kroll, who was our 21st pastor, passed the torch on to me. 
And I've been your 22nd pastor for all of these years. Now it's my turn to pass the torch on to somebody else. And so we're all in this together, what Dr. Kroll did and what other pastors, Ed, Edwin Crawford and the other pastors, uh, Bill Austin and all the other pastors from Luther Rice Scruggs until, until my coming. Uh, we, we all work together. We weren't uh, in opposition to one another. We weren't enemies of one another. We worked together. I built what I was able to accomplish by the grace and strength and leadership of Almighty God because those pastors ahead of me prepared the foundation and laid the way for me. And we've all worked together. And the same thing is true about myself and the next pastor and you as a church congregation. We're working together, folks. It's not just one person. It's all of us collectively together. The church, Paul compared to, uh, to a body. Uh, you have fingers and toes and eyes and ears and a heart and lungs and all of these other parts of our body. When one part of us are, in, are injured or sick, the whole body. It's not, just, it's not just that finger that hurt that you got smashed with a hammer. Uh, you know, and you stuck it in your mouth. You, you did it a little jig. You danced a little bit. I mean, your feet got happy too. You, you hurt all over. And when somebody in our church hurts, we all hurt. We are a body. And we work together. And uh, so Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who caused the growth. God did. For we are God's fellow workers. And you are God's field and God's building. In the days before cars, there was a wagon driver who could afford only one mule. And he loved the mule who answered to the name of Jim. One day, the driver was helping his passengers to get in. Finally, each of them had a seat and the driver cracked his whip and he called out, Giddy up, Jim. Giddy up, Laverne. Giddy up, Eb. Giddy up, Huey. Giddy up, Otis. The old wagon lurched forward and one of the passengers leaned forward and asked the driver, well, since Jim is the only mule you've got, why did you call out all those other names? The driver replied, if Jim knew that he was the only one pulling, he'd never budge an inch. <laughs> Jesus didn't do it all by himself. Now, when he died on the cross, he did. But at the beginning of his ministry, he selected 12 individuals who spent three years with him, living with him, working with him, walking with him, eating with him, witnessing the miracles that he would perform, listening to the sermons that he preached, being trained by Jesus because he sent them out two by two by two by two to witness. So Jesus had a team and they worked together. The apostle Paul had a team. There was Silas and Timothy and Barnabas and John Mark, and Priscilla, and Aquila, and Titus. So yes, Paul was a leader, but he worked with a lot of team members as well. And we do the same. Number five is productive. Matthew 13, 23. The good soil represents the hearts of those who truly accept God's message and produce a huge harvest. 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as has been planted. You see, when you sow the seed, you always reap more than you sow. Now, I don't have the time to look at all of these verses of Scripture, but if you're interested, I'm going to give you 10 references, all out of the book of Acts, that talk about the growth of the early church. And so you can just write the references down if you want, all out of the book of Acts. Number one, Acts 2.41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. 
That was on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.41. Acts 2.47, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So it wasn't just 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. The Lord continued to add day by day those who were being saved. So the church was in the process of growing. Acts 4.4. But many of those who had heard the message believed. And the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So now you've got 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. The Lord adding more day in and day out. And then in Acts chapter 4 verse 4, 5,000 more. Acts 5.14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly being added to their number. Acts 6.7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Acts 11.21, And the hand of the Lord was with them and a large number of people who believed. Turn to the Lord. Acts 14.1, in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of the Jews and the Greeks. Acts 16.5, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Acts 17.4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And the tenth and final one, Acts 19.26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. These are just some of the examples of the early church growing and multiplying day after day after day. How, as these people went out, the disciples sharing, passing the torch, telling other people about Jesus. They were productive. This church needs to continue to be productive. We've had many people who've been saved and joined our church by transfer of membership or other other means, uh, by statement and so forth. But but we don't need to just sit down and quit now. We've got to keep going. If we quit, then we've lost. Number six, privilege. 2 Timothy 2, 6. Hardworking farmers or the first to enjoy the fruit of their labors. Can you imagine when we give an invitation at the end of our services and see somebody walk down the aisle, even coming to make public their profession of faith or to join our church? Time of rejoicing for us, and time for us to praise the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 19, after all, what gives us hope and joy? And what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus Christ when he returns? It's you. Yes, you are our pride and joy. He's talking about people that he's led to the Lord. When you get to heaven, will there be anybody there who will greet you, who will say, thank you for sharing Jesus with me. Thank you for helping me to become a Christian. Thank you for sharing the love of God with me. Couldn't you embrace that person and rejoice with that person? Because the Bible says there's joy in heaven in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. There's a song that's been written called Stars in My Crown by John Sweeney. I'm thinking today of that beautiful land I shall reach when the sun goes down, when through wonderful grace by my Savior I stand. Will there be any stars in my crown? In the strength of the Lord, let me labor and pray. Let me watch as a winner of souls. 
that bright stars may be mine in the glorious days when his praise like the sea billows roll. Oh, what joy it will be when his face I behold, living gems at his feet to lay down. It wouldn't sweeten my bliss in the city of gold should there be any stars in my crown. Will there be any stars, any stars in my crown when at evening the sun goes down? Will there be any stars in your crown, your crown, your crown, those in the lower auditorium? Anybody out there going to have a star in your crown because there was one person, just one person, or a hundred people, or ten, or two, somebody that you've led to the Lord, somebody with whom you have shared the good news of Jesus Christ. Number seven is praise. John four thirty six. the harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. So there will be praise and rejoicing. Our joy until we die is to win people to the Lord, the lost sheep, the lost corn, the prodigal son, the three stories that Jesus told all in with people rejoicing and praising the Lord for the corn that was lost, for the sheep that was lost, and for the lost son who had returned home. Number eight is prayer. Luke 10, 2, prayer not only for lost people, but for more witnesses, more harvesters. These were his instructions to them. The harvest is so great, but the workers are so few. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him to send out more workers for his field. I shared with you, I think before, I, I know on Sunday night I did, you know, I'm told when, when I read statistics that the average number of people that one person can minister to, such as a pastor or music man or education, whatever it may be, the, the extent that I can minister to people is about 100 people. Now, I do, do more than that, but, but it's not the same 100, but it's 100 people. But we have eight staff members, counting myself. All eight staff members could reach 800. But what about you? We have over 1,500, 2,000 members of this church. If each one of them, if each one of you would just win one, just one, how you would rejoice, rejoicing for the Lord and for the salvation of others. And, and we can praise the Lord and, and we need to pray. Pray that our next pastor will lead you in an in in effort of, of evangelism. Pray that the, the existing staff that we have now will continue the work of reaching out to our community and visiting those who come to our church and witnessing to the people and winning them to Christ. Now, in conclusion, there's one other thing that I want to refer to you to, and, and then I'll be through. I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13 and verse 30. Matthew 13 and verse 30. Matthew 13 and verse 30. And on this one, I'm reading out of the New American Standard, whatever your translation may be. Now, the disciples have come to Jesus. They went out to, to reap the harvest only to discover that somebody had gone out in, in the dark hours and had sown tares, weeds. And uh, they didn't catch it until the, the wheat started to grow. And when they went out to check on the wheat, they discovered that the tares were growing up also. So they were mixed in with the wheat. 
And the disciples asked, asked Jesus, he said, uh, they said, uh, do you want us to go out, or in the parable that Jesus said, do you want us to go out and try to root out the tares so that it won't choke out the life from the wheat? And the farmer said, no. Because if you try to reap, uh, tear out the, the weeds or the tares now, you, you, you are in danger of pulling out the, uh, the wheat too. So you've got to wait until they both grow up. And then when the harvest time comes, the harvesters will go out and then they will separate the tares from the wheat. If you ever wondered, why, why doesn't the Lord just take us out of this world now? Why does he leave us here to go through all the suffering and the killing and the murder and all the, uh, the cheating and the lying and the, and the crime and the corruption, uh, immorality that's going on in the world today? Here we are, Christian people, trying to live good moral lives and we're in the mix of all these corrupt, immoral people. Why doesn't God just take us out of here? Because if you tear, or, or, the, or the evil people, get the evil people out of here so we can live good lives. Well, where's he going to start? I'm going to start with you. And you. And me. Because if I were to gather my righteousness around myself in the eyes of God, it's just filthy rags. But, you know, the angels are going to be the ones who bring in the harvest. They'll be able to detect the tares from the wheat. But then notice something. In verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. Now that's a reference to hell, folks. Because hell, Jesus said, was a place where there's an unquenchable fire that burns day in and day out. A place of torment, punishment. So he says, you wait till the harvest comes. Then the harvesters are going to go out and they're going to gather up the tares, the lost people of the world, and they're going to bundle them up and they'll be thrown into hell. But notice the next phrase, but, so there's a contrast. There'll be a different gathering. The tares will have their place in hell. But, he says, gather the wheat. And where's he going to put it? In the barn. In the barn. Never thought about the church or the kingdom of God or heaven be compared to a barn. That's what it is. You gather the harvest of lost souls. A mother here, a dad here, a child here, an adult over here, a woman, a man, whomever, multitudes of people being gathered up, taken to God's barn. When you put the wheat in the barn, it's safe from the elements won't rain on it, snow won't fall on it, and it'll be protected. It'll have security there. You're, you're going to be gathered, if I can refer to heaven in a reverent way, into the God's barn, and you'll be there forever, and you'll never be harmed, and you will be safe forevermore. What group will you be a part of when the Lord comes? If the Lord were to come right now and, and send his angels in here to reap the harvest, where would, would you be bundled up and cast into hell or would you be privileged to go into God's barn to live forever? He that goeth forth and weeping, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him.
sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noontide and the dewy eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, sowing in the sunshine, sowing in the shadows, fearing neither clouds nor winter's chilling breeze. By and by the harvest and the labor ended, we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves, going forth with weeping, sowing for the master. Though the law sustained, our spirit often grieves. When our weeping is over, he will bid us welcome, and we shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. May we bow together, please. The work will never be done of bringing in the sheaves until you come in the time of the harvest, Father, and send out your angels to gather those that are the tares to be cast into hell forever. But for those who know you, who've trusted you, who love you, have been saved, born again, will be privileged to be gathered and placed into the barn of security to be with you forever, to enjoy all that you've prepared for your children. Help us, dear God, as a church, family, as pastor and staff, to not drop the torch, to not sit down and quit, but that we would keep going, keep working, keep sowing the seed, keep sharing, keep harvesting, all to your glory. And as we come now to this time of invitation, perhaps there's someone here who would be a part of that group that's gathered to be placed in the barn. Holy Spirit of God, open their eyes to the understanding of what it means to be saved, to experience the grace of God. Holy Spirit, bring conviction to their hearts that they might be saved and know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're saved. Give them courage to come forward and let us rejoice with them in their decision. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? And if God is leading you to make your decision, please come.